Hey, what's going on? Welcome to the Barbells and Burgers podcast. As always, I am your host, Shane Hubbard. Hope you're doing well today. I'm recording this podcast on a Friday. You'll be listening to this if you listen to it when it drops on a Monday. So you will be starting the week. I hope you're starting off the week well. And if you're listening to this podcast, I really hope that uh, this is one of the better parts of your day. I know that for me, when I listen to certain podcasts or certain messages on you know, different platforms, that it can be a real good way to start my day. And it, I, I think that's an important thing to have in your life. So if this podcast helps you do that, more power to you. And I'm, I'm glad to be able to uh, shed some light on some very important topics today, which I think that you'll really get a lot of value out of. I've been meaning to do um, a podcast on this topic for a little while now, but I wanted to make sure that I had enough good information to give you before I just went out and made a podcast episode on it. So today we're going to be talking about how to stay in a calorie deficit at restaurants. Okay, that's a very big challenge and it, it doesn't just have to be a restaurant. It could be fast food joints. It could be anytime you're eating outside of the house and someone else is preparing your food, which means that if you're going to an event, uh, you know, maybe a fundraiser or maybe you're going to someone's house for dinner and you obviously don't have a, a ton of control over what is being served or something like that, how to navigate those situations. Cause I get a lot of uh, feedback from you, the listener saying, Hey, you know, I love the podcast. Thanks so much for doing it. Would you mind talking about how to navigate the world of, of nutrition? And, and if you're somebody who's trying to lose weight and be healthier, how to do that in situations that are very common, but less ideal. And so I think this will be a really good topic for you to um, have in your back pocket from when those situations come up. And then we're also going to talk about some easy food swaps uh, that you can do to lose weight pretty much seamlessly. I mean, when you make these food swaps, a lot of times what ends up happening is you don't even really miss the food that you were eating. And it's not that you, again, I'm never about elimination and I'm never about, you know, completely cutting things out of your diet unless you're allergic or, you know, it's giving you some kind of negative uh, reaction that really affects you. But the majority of the time, it's important to understand which calories or which foods are better to consume in larger quantities and which ones you should reduce in quantity. And I think that education and that level of understanding goes a really long way because it allows you to have more balance. When, you're, when you have more education and understanding and structure with your nutrition, it's so much easier to juggle those things. So education is a huge um, priority of mine because I think, again, the more educated you are, the easier it is to make decisions, especially on the fly, which is what our first topic is going to be about today. So there, there are no announcements today, so we're going to go right into our first topic, which is how to stay in a calorie deficit at restaurants. So let's talk a little bit about why it's so difficult to stay in a calorie deficit at restaurants. One of the things that a lot of restaurants have been doing recently is been um, putting their actual calorie totals. So not necessarily the macro breakdown. That would be amazing if they could do that. Um, I think that's probably more work than they're willing to put in, but who knows? Maybe we'll get to that point. But they're at least putting the calorie amounts on their food items. And what it is, what it has done for the public and for people that are more health conscious is it's allowed us to budget and make better choices based on the calorie amounts of foods. Now, sometimes what I've done in the past is I've, I've made it a challenge for myself, and I think I even documented this one time on Instagram, where I'll find the item that has the most amount of calories based on the category I want. So like usually it's a pizza or a burger combo, and those usually, those calories cannot add up. But I am 
sometimes amazed at how many calories some of these meals have because if you were to look at that meal and then you would look at a meal that you would make at home of a similar nature um, there's definitely a discrepancy between the calories and so it's an interest of mine and i'm sure that it'll eventually become something that you kind of pique your curiosity is, is why there's such a big difference between restaurant food and home cooking and i'll explain a little bit as we go so that's the first thing that you want to start paying more attention to if you aren't already is the total calorie amount of the meal that you want to choose because at the very least it's giving you the option to make a choice based on that. Now if you want to go into a restaurant and pretty much eat whatever you want, I'm not here to stop you. But if you want to have consistent results and you want to stay on the quote unquote consistency train with your results then it's important to understand these things uh, for making decisions. So I'm not saying you have to always get a salad when you go out to a restaurant, but maybe there's some kind of middle ground where you can get something that has protein, that has vegetables, that tastes amazing, and you're really not sacrificing a whole lot, but you're also being calorie conscious. And, you know, there there has been a little bit of, you know, I've seen in, in like kind of the social media internet world, um, this... Um, advice to let go of your calorie conscious, uh, you know, insights and, and, and not feel prisoned by the calories on, in a food. And, um, you know, I, I support that message for the right person. I think that if you're consistently obsessed about every single calorie that you consume, that if you're going that far down the spectrum, that uh, hearing a message that allows you to break free from that is very important. But I don't think that message is for everyone. If you're someone who, you know, just wants to try to be a little bit more cautious and a little bit more mindful and a little bit more aware of what you're eating, then I think it's actually very important to understand how many calories are in a food because the visual representation of the food that we get at restaurants or even that we make at home does not necessarily reflect the calorie amount in that food. And you hear me talk a lot about calorie density. You hear me talk a lot about how a certain amount of food can have a lot of density with calories. Um, think, uh, I can't think of a, an amazing uh, analogy, but I can think of one that, that works pretty well here. You know, imagine um, the difference between bleach, which is very concentrated, you know, chemical, and, you know, something like hand soap. They're both meant to do some type of cleaning or cleansing, but one of them is a lot stronger and the other one isn't that strong, or at least it's a little bit more mild. You want to kind of think of that in terms of calorie density versus, um, you know, calorie not so density. I don't know what the, the opposite of calorie density, but not calorie dense. Um, you know, like for example, spinach, you can eat an entire bowl of spinach and I think that you might get somewhere in the neighborhood of 120 calories, but the amount of food you're getting is going to fill you up so fast that you're really only going to eat 120 calories or whatever else you have on that salad, uh, you know, within reason. Whereas, you know, it, only two tablespoons of something like peanut butter or even two tablespoons of olive oil can be you know, north of 200 calories very easily. So this idea that calorie density is, um, you know, this, this idea of calorie density for understanding more about food is very important. And once you start to understand that that's a thing, you can start applying that to different uh, you know, foods in the food world, wherever you're going about food. So 
the reason why I, I tell you that is because it's, it's more than just what your food looks like and guessing calories. The accuracy rating on that is about 25% accurate when you look at studies that are done on people that are guessing how many calories food has. So guessing or just using the eyeball test is really not a viable way uh, of being um, accurate with what it is that you're doing. And if you've ever tracked your calories or ever tracked your nutrition in any sort of way where you start to associate calories and proteins and carbs and fats with the food you eat, you start to learn this very easily that, you know, if you were to relate this to money, it would be like going out and, you know, getting a paycheck and you have a certain amount of money you can spend every day. But every single day you bought a Lamborghini, you know, it's just like, well, you're putting all your money into one thing, but you have all these other things you're responsible for doing. Um, so you start to understand things like that where, you know, you have to budget, you have to be a little bit more cautious in today's food world with the kind of calories you consume. And the reason why I send this message home so much, and I try to do it as frequently as possible is because when I hear you know, food experts where I hear, you know, weight loss coaches or, you know, whoever, I'm not trying to, to, to shit on them necessarily. But when I hear people talk about, oh, we got to eat the way our ancestors ate, that message can be positive, but it can also be spun another way that I've heard, you know, people kind of get lost in where, yes, our ancestors ate a lot of whole foods and they ate in this sort of way and, and they lived in this sort of environment, which is a great message. Like, yes, I, I definitely promote whole foods. But our ancestors also didn't have 24-hour access to food. They didn't have processed foods. They weren't tempted by foods that combined sugar, salt, and fat. They never lived in that environment. So I would imagine that if you were to go back in time with all of these uh, same scenarios, you would have the way humans are right now. I don't think that there's something um, innately wrong with the way humans react in their current food environment because I think it's pretty natural based on f food and the evolution of human beings to react to certain foods to explain why it is that we are the way we are with food today. You know, I, I oftentimes, uh, you know, back when I was first a coach, I, would, I had a hard time understanding how somebody could go so far in one direction with their weight in an unhealthy way. And I, as I started to learn more about the science and how the brain works and how appetite and, and all these different things like sugar, salt, and fat interact with our brain, that it actually makes perfect sense. And it's almost a perfect equation for the environment, meaning that when you have the food environment with all the processed foods that we have today, and you have the evolution of brain of the brain in prioritizing calories and how certain foods can create a longing or a um, I'll get into that in a second but essentially how the brain interacts with food in an environment that constantly has foods that stimulate the brain to want to eat more the end of that equation is somebody who has excess body fat who's unhealthy who is gaining a lot of weight in, a, in an unhealthy manner. So again, the equation actually makes perfect sense. Obesity is the result of the equation that we have on the other side of the equation sign, right? Environment that's constantly stressful, an environment that's constantly bombarded with convenience foods that have sugar, salt, and fat that are uh, virtually void of nutrition. I would say that pretty much all processed foods to a certain extent are void of nutrition, like actual vitamins, minerals, um, that the portions that the foods that were given are so much larger. And because the food is so palatable that it's really easy to overeat the calories without even really knowing it. The fact that we know that 
we all have a very difficult time estimating how many calories are in food just by looking at it. All of these things make perfect sense for why we have an obesity epidemic right now. And I know I'm sort of getting to the answer to this first topic in a roundabout way, but it's important that you understand this before you get into it because the more about why this all happens, you under the more about it you understand, the easier it's going to be to understand everything else I'm about to talk about. Okay? So let's kind of circle back around and start talking about how to stay in a calorie deficit at restaurants. So we already know that most every restaurant, I mean, if McDonald's is doing it, pretty much everyone is going to be doing it, is putting calories on their food. Now you might think, okay, I know the calories in the food that I'm consuming. What about the individual components like proteins, carbs, and fats? When you're out to eat at a restaurant, I do recommend that you try to order something that has a serving of protein and a serving of vegetables. Most, I mean, for the most part, appetizers don't so much have it. And I think that's strategically placed. But I would say that just about every single entree has some type of protein. And you want to you want to try to get some type of protein. The reason why appetizers don't typically is because it's more expensive. So when you're looking at it on the menu, you're less likely to pick an expensive appetizer because you're already going to be spending money on an entree. And I would imagine that food scientists that work with restaurants to create menus understand that if you put protein at the beginning of a meal, there's less of a chance that that person's going to continue eating the rest of that meal. Like they're not going to eat as much. So I would imagine that because they're trying to get you to spend more money, I mean, it's one of the reasons why they always ask you if you want dessert. It's not because they want you to enjoy more of your time. It's because they want you to spend more money. Remember, restaurants want you to spend money. They want you to have a good time so you come back. But at the end of the day, they want you to come back because they want you to make they want to make money off of you. And it's not malicious. I'm just saying that's that's the goal of a business. That's the goal of a restaurant is for you to come back and to spend more money. So anyway, you want one source of protein. Now, don't worry so much about the quantity. I would I would say that if if you're a little bit more savvy with this, somewhere in the, the neighborhood of three to six ounces. So if you order a steak or a chicken breast, it's usually going to be in that amount. Um, so don't worry so much about it being exact. But some source of protein is important. And then one source of vegetables, which could be a salad, you know, provided that you're being cautious about not drowning it in, in dressing. And we'll talk about some ways that you can reduce calories at restaurants a little bit later in this uh, topic. But, um, you know, a side of salad could, could totally be that version of or that amount of um, vegetables that you get at that meal. And so you're sort of making this little checklist for yourself. Okay, I got my protein. My entree has, you know, this amount of protein in whatever form. You know, it doesn't have to be a specific form. It just needs to be a substantial amount of protein. So, you know, usually a fish source, a beef source, or a poultry, you know, chicken source. Um, some type of vegetable, whether it comes with your entree or if it's a side salad that you order sort of before your meal to kind of, you know, get your veggies in and, and, and make it uh, still make it something that you're enjoying so you don't feel like, oh, I have to get a salad. It's more about using it as a strategy to both have fun when you're at a, at a restaurant, get what you want, but also, you know, meet some of your personal goals with your nutrition. Um, and then, you know, there's some other tips that kind of, you know, I would say that at the very most, try to get protein and vegetables because those things are going to help you from way overdoing it at restaurants, which is really easy to do because most of the food, if not every single thing on the menu 
is calorie laden. Like it's just, there's lots of butters and oils. And a lot of times what restaurants will do and menu items will have is they'll have some kind of combination between sugar, salt, and fat. And the reason they do that is because food scientists know, and food scientists work with restaurants too. It's not like they're just making, you know, your favorite Dorito flavor, you know, coming out uh, next fall. Um, They also work with restaurants because menu items and and food in general has to be pleasurable to the brain. Because food scientists know that when your brain is excited by food, you will be excited by food and you will come back to eat that food, especially if it's prepared in a way that that excites the brain and lights up the brain. And the easiest way to light up the brain is to give it sugar, salt, and fat in the same meal uh, when you combine certain things. So like I had a hamburger the other day that had, it was really, really good. And there again, there's that food working on my brain. So you can see how almost passively this will happen. You don't even have to be conscious of it, but you can think about it the next time you're at a restaurant. I had a burger that had some kind of jam on it, but it also had cheese. And then there was fat in the meat because it was a, you know, it was a a burger. It was a, you know, probably like a 70, 30 burger or something like that. And it was obviously a little bit salty, both from the French fries as the side, but it also, because the meat, you know, has sodium in it, there was some salt in there too. So a lot of times if you get a burger that has some kind of sweet, you know, maybe it's caramel, uh, caramel, what am I trying to say? Caramelized onions. Um, it could be any type of sweet flavor. It could just be the sauce, the barbecue sauce they use. Um, this combination of sugar, salt, and fat really, you know, stokes your brain out. Like it really gets excited about it. Um, and the, the, the combination of these flavors, I wouldn't say it plays a trick on your brain, but it gets your brain so excited that it, it sort of, your brain is sort of telling your stomach, get more of this, get more of this, get more of this. And there have been a couple of studies to show that sugar's effect on the brain can bypass satiety to a certain extent. Maybe not like completely because I don't, I think that at some point you're the signal from your stomach that you're full is going to eventually become so uncomfortable that it won't really matter what your brain wants. Although we'll, maybe we'll get to something about how snacking can be a, a sort of a part of that. And I'll, exp, I'll even share a personal, ex, a personal story about that. Um, if I can remember anyway. So this effect of sugar, salt, and fat on your brain allows you to eat more without necessarily feeling those same satiety cues. And restaurants know this. Food scientists tell them this. Menus are designed off of this, uh, you know, this kind of premise because, again, when you excite the brain, the human follows and they come back and they spend more money at your restaurant. It makes perfect logical sense when you're thinking it from a business standpoint. It might upset you a little bit to know that they're sort of working on your brain to get you to want to eat more, but it's not worth fighting. It's just, you just got to be a little bit more mindful of how you do things. Okay. So one of the most important kind of recap, because I always like when I, when I've been talking for at least 10 minutes on a single subject, I know it can be hard to remember exactly what it was that we were talking about originally. So we're talking about how to stay in a calorie deficit at restaurants. The best things that you can do is be mindful of the calorie amount that you're consuming and be mindful of the type of food that you're eating. If you're getting an entree that has protein and you're finding a way either through, you know, maybe a side salad or maybe there's vegetables that come with your food um, that uh, that have vegetables in it, then you those those two check marks, you should try to always check off to your best ability. Um, I went out to lunch with my fiance. 
and I got a BLTA, which is basically baking lettuce, tomato, and avocado. Now, I could have gotten a protein source that was a little bit more substantial. Bacon is not a great protein source. In fact, if you get you know, traditional uh, pig bacon, it is mostly fat. It's, it's a little bit of protein. I think it's two grams per slice, but it's, it's something like in the neighborhood of five or six grams of fat. So it's actually calorically um, more fat than it is protein. We think of it as protein, but it's actually more fat. Um, so it really wasn't a substantial protein source, but I was aware of what I was doing. And obviously it's different for me with you know, the education that I have for you, on the other hand, it, it would probably be better to get a more substantial protein source. Um, and then I had a side salad. And one of the strategies that I really like to implement when I go to restaurants is, is I always order my dressing on the side. So that's number three. We got protein at, at, at your entree meal. We got a side salad or some type of vegetable with your entree. And then the third thing is if you're going to get a salad or going to get a sauce, make sure it's on the side. And the reason for that is you want to be in control of how much you consume of that sauce. I don't think it's necessary to completely eliminate it from the salad, but I do know that Again, restaurants care about how much you spend and how much you enjoy the food. So they're going to lather things up with butters and sauces and you know all these things that heighten the food flavor. So I would rather be responsible of that myself than give that luxury to the restaurant because I'm trying to be calorie conscious. I don't want to spend my calories on sauces without having some control over them. So I like to order my, my dressings or whatever kind of sauce is on the side. Now, if a hamburger comes with some kind of barbecue sauce, I, let, I usually let it be a judgment call. Like I, I don't wanna go to a restaurant and have to dissect every single thing that's on the menu and customize every single thing because I just think that that's a lot of unnecessary work. But at the same time, if you have the option of making it more convenient, like a side salad or, you know, dressing on the side, then go for it. You know, lots of restaurants are used to that by now. It's not going to be too much work for you to just say, hey, can I get the dressing on the side? That's not going to be a big deal. But if you're going through your burger and saying, well, you know, is are the pickles in this sort of brine or in, the, in this? Where does the ketchup come from? Does it come from Ohio or Florida? You, that's unnecessary, right? At a certain point, you just have to accept that you're at a restaurant. It's going to have more calories than you like. And as long as you don't have an allergy to something and you're making sure they know, you don't have to be super diligent about making sure every single calorie is in your control. But in the moments or in the situations where you can control something like a, a salad with dressing on the side, that's the best route to go. Because nine times out of 10, you don't even need the amount of dressing they give you. I've actually done little experiments here and there, and I've, I've had salads with the full amount of dressing. I've had salads with half. I've had salads with a, you know, a quarter of the dressing that um, I've eaten. And, and to be completely honest, and you know, obviously my palate might be different than yours, and you might be a different stage in your whole food versus you know, processed food environment, but um, I've noticed that you, know, I've sort of, you can kind of wean yourself off of having everything drained drenched in, in dressing you can I can get away at least with about a quarter of the dressing they give me if you mix it well enough and you've got some other tasty things in there like croutons so I challenge you and, and I I would think it would be a good idea if you try next time you're at a restaurant to you know you don't have to do a quarter of the dressing but just try half you know don't put the whole thing in and what I think you'll notice is is that the flavor that you might think you're giving up really isn't something you're giving up. Uh, you still get that flavor. You still get that um, tasty, you know, feedback. You still get what's important about food from a flavor standpoint. But you don't 
also get all those extra calories. So again, I challenge you to at least experiment with that yourself because I think when you start to realize that you can have your cake and eat it too, as long as you're portioning out your cake and not eating the whole thing, it can be a really simple and yet very effective way to cut back on calories, especially when you're at restaurants. So that's another important thing to understand. The other thing to try to do to your best ability is, and I'm going to say this sort of with a preface, it's very hard with something like a side of French fries or something that's salty and crunchy and really, really heightens the brain when it comes to flavor to try to just have a little bit, to have moderation. This is one of the reasons why I can sometimes go back and forth in my message about processed foods. I do think it's important that you have food freedom, that you allow yourself to eat what's ever on the table. But I also know how processed food works on your brain. And if you're the kind of person that has a hard time stopping with something like chips or crackers or ice creams, foods that are salty, sweet, and fat, and have all these, you know, this, this, trio of uh, very brain exciting uh, foods or substances, then what I would recommend is to ahead of time portion out what you're going to eat and and really commit to that. Um, And I I speak from experience. I have uh, the personality and the eating behavior that I have to be very diligent about the processed food that I eat. And it took me a really long time. I'm not even going to try to pretend that I Um, you know, I'm an expert at this and that I don't still deal with this, but my brain gets very excited when I have processed foods like tortilla chips or French fries or like Doritos is a big one for me. Um, I've talked about on this podcast how I I really try to stay away from ice cream because I'm not good at all. I have like a 10% success rate of cutting myself off when I should. And sometimes that's what's going to happen. You know, like just like, you know, if you were in your if you were at home right now and, and, you know, you were thinking, well, you know, I just got paid. Should I go out and spend my money on a Lamborghini or should I go and gamble all my money away? You know, if you were to frame it that way, you'd probably be like, no, that doesn't make any sense. Like, why would I take my entire paycheck and go try to, you know, win more money at Vegas? Well, because the likelihood of you winning more money at Vegas is pretty slim, right? So if you're the kind of person that understands that logic, then you have to start applying that to things like, you know, processed foods. If you know you have a difficult time around French fries and chips and crackers and, and, you know, whatever your sort of vice food is, then it's important to establish moderation before you get started, not say I'm going to eat this much and, you know, but you're holding the entire bag of chips. Um, Or make sure that you have some kind of thing that helps you create moderation. And there's different strategies that we can go over uh, in a different podcast about how to do that. In fact, um, I'll go ahead and type that up as a topic. Um, But at the end of the day, what I want you to understand is that when you're at a place like a restaurant or we'll even start including fast food joints or you're at somebody's house, you have to be a little bit more premeditative. You have to be able to go, okay, I'm in this situation. This is the best that I can do. And you have to be, you have to give yourself some grace. All right. This is more the mindset part of it, but I want you to understand that you're not going to be perfect at a place like a, a, a restaurant. Like the other day, they didn't even, um, 
I was at a restaurant. What was I doing? And they forgot to put my uh, barbecue sauce for my hamburger on the side. Now I could sit there and be upset because, you know, if I'm trying to be diligent about the calories I consume, I could be upset that they didn't do that. And, and I could, you know, scrape it off and, you know, that kind of thing. But, you know, again, you got to remember that if you're being diligent and you're being consistent, one day is not going to ruin your progress. So there's going to be situations where you don't have all the control of the calories you consume. And the more you can be comfortable with that notion and realize that it's not a personal fault on your end, the more you're going to have a consistent outlook and a consistent action-taking process for getting through those you know, challenging times in life. I had a client of mine who had family members who were all born in the same month. I think it was April that they were all born and and she was a grandparent and so all uh, the majority of her grandkids were all born in April. So she said April is just a uh, a tough month for me because I'm constantly going to birthday parties and there's constantly cake and grandma has to have a slice of cake and and I you know I totally empathize with her. I'm like, yeah, I, mean, I can't imagine it's easy to have to navigate all of that food when you're so used to eating so good at home. Um, so we talked about some strategies, you know, about trying to do some things, and I'd like to share that on the podcast here now uh, that that sort of apply to either social events or restaurants or you know whatever eating situation you might be in where you're really not in con- complete control of what it is that you are eating. If you're at a restaurant, obviously you have control of what you're ordering, but you know the the menu is only so large, so you have to make a choice. Whereas something like a social event, someone's usually preparing food, and you just have to sort of navigate it the best you can on the spot. I mean, yeah, maybe you could call them ahead of time, but um, I try to make it as as socially uh, is the least it can be socially awkward. I didn't know how to say it any better than way than that, but I don't want you to make yourself socially awkward because of the food you know, choices that are around you. That's, that's one of the hardest things about social eating is that a lot of times what we'll feel is we'll feel as though we are sort of a pariah or some kind of black sheep in a scenario where we're trying to be healthy at a event when no one really cares about, or, or at least the person who's preparing the food isn't thinking about things when it comes to like healthy, you know, food choices and stuff like that. So, um, we're going to talk about a couple of strategies that can be really good for you in those situations. So the one that I like the most is if you're going to an event and you know, there's going to be food and you know, most of the food isn't really going to be on the healthy end. Like, let's say there isn't a, a veggie plate or a fruit plate, and it's mostly just, you know, processed foods that you can eat a lot of and the, or you can, it's very easy to eat a lot of, and there's a lot of calories in those foods once they've been eaten in high quantities. If you're in a situation like that, and you know that's what's coming up, one of the best things to do is to actually eat before you go to the event. I've done this in the past. It seems sort of backwards. It seems kind of awkward, like, you know, if someone says, why aren't you eating? You'd be like, well, I already ate. And then they feel offended because their food isn't good enough or something like that. But it's not that you're doing it to completely eliminate having some of the food at the party, but it's so that your appetite isn't as over the top and your brain isn't so starving for any type of flavor and food that you just go hog wild. Because one of the hardest things to do, especially when you're eating something like processed food that has such intense flavor, is it's hard to quote unquote shut off your brain when those flavors finally hit your brain, they hit your tongue and you're just like, oh, I can't stop eating these, right? We've all been in a situation where we're eating something and it, we feel out of control, right? That's what processed food does. That's the, that's the central purpose. So 
I don't want you to feel as though you are weird or broken or, um, you know, a bad person because you have a hard time not uh, stopping when when you're eating. The whole goal of the food that you're eating is to get you to eat more and to not be able to stop. So again, when you when you look at the inputs for the equation, the result makes perfect sense because again, food scientists that make these processed foods, and this is across the board, when you're engineering a food, you're creating it to to solicit a specific response. And the specific response is of food companies, and I don't believe this is malicious. I, I don't know. Maybe it is to some extent because they don't care about your health. But again, business and health typically don't go hand in hand unless you're, you know, uh, trying to create uh, some kind of fitness business or health business. But when it comes to food companies, all they care about is if you really like the food, if they got your brain to like the food, and if you're going to buy it again, because that's how they make more money. A food company would not survive if you only had to buy one serving of it to get your fill for the rest of your life. No business would survive. I mean, why do we go to places like McDonald's? Why do we go to places that we like to eat? Because we really like the food, because that food has done something to our brains that excites us, that makes us happy, that releases dopamine, that then you know makes us happy and all that good stuff. So it makes perfect sense when you look at things from the level of the brain. I sort of forgot where I was going with that, but I remember that I was talking about having a meal before you go to the vet. So again, it's not that you're trying to completely avoid eating the food. It's that you're trying to reduce the likelihood of you overeating the food that's at the party. So when you get a plate, you can get, you know, things here and there, and you can still be a part of the social eating. You just aren't going to be the person who's sitting there constantly eating chips because you just you can't stop eating them. So having some kind of meal or having some amount of food, like I'm not saying you have to stuff your face at home and then go to the party and be all uncomfortable so you won't eat anything, but having some substance, some kind of substantial amount of protein and vegetables, like I'll just give you my strategy. If I, and this is mostly for me personally, but you might identify with this as well. I have a tendency that when I'm really hungry that I don't really stop when I'm full. I know it's bad. But I like to be transparent with everyone that I talk to. I don't want to seem like I have it all figured out because I don't. I've actually learned a lot about this through my own personal failures. I've learned a lot about, um, you know, eating behavior because I, you know, sort of have, I wouldn't say I have an eating disorder, but I have a disordered way of eating in a lot of ways. And I'm not exactly sure where that comes from. It could come from stress. It could come from, you know, um, the years that I was uh, trying to eat more calories to, to gain muscle mass. There was a period of time where I was sort of overeating uh, because I was trying to gain more muscle mass and I went through that period. And I think that in a lot of ways that can have a detrimental effect on uh, your mindset and your eating behavior when it comes to food. And so I might be dealing a little bit with that. But, you know, that being said, I've learned a lot and I've been able to teach and help a lot of people that have gone through the same thing. So I think it's sort of a, a, a curse in the beginning and then a blessing afterwards because I've been able to, to go through that journey and, and really <clears throat> uh, make the most of it through helping others. So what I do is I like to have a vegetable and protein, you know, snack, so to speak, you know, somewhere in the 300 to 500 calorie range. Uh, it's not really a snack. It's more of a meal, but, um, I like to do that about an hour and a half, maybe an hour before a social event. And I don't, and trust me, I don't do this every single time. I just know that 
if I have been trying to stay diligent and I know my tendencies and a lot of times my tendencies at a party or an event is to snack while I'm there, that I'll have a meal beforehand. And again, it's not that I'm not going to have some of the food that's at that social event. It's just so that I'm not constantly trying to fill my appetite with food that won't fill my appetite, if that makes sense. So again, it's not me, it's not, and I don't go to parties, you know, saying, oh, I'm not going to eat because I've done this. I've done that in the past. I've said, oh, I ate before I came. And while for me socially, it doesn't affect, like, I don't care that people know that about me. Like if I tell somebody that and they're like, oh, well, you just don't think our food's good enough. I have no problem explaining to that person that it's not a personal problem. It's not something, it's not because I don't think your food's good enough. It's because I'm trying to stay health conscious right now. And doing that helps me not overeat when I'm here. And at that point, if, if somebody's offended by that, I don't have any control over that. And it's not my problem that they can't be happy for me that I've chose to make healthier choices. They're taking it personally. And as a result of them taking it personally, they are trying to make me feel bad for what I said. And I don't think that's rude because I'm not handling it in a disrespectful way. Um, there's a great story, not to go too far on a tangent, there's a great story of this nutrition um, uh, nutritionist who was at a speaking event. And he was at the event, and the event was mostly for like, you know, bodybuilders and fitness professionals. And it wasn't necessarily like super health conscious people, but it was health conscious enough so that the, the effect that he was going to get out of this, this little experiment was pretty interesting and, and very fun. So <clears throat> the point he was trying to make in his, in his lecture was sometimes you have to make sacrifices for bigger goals in your life. And anyway, he said at the end of it, he said, you know what? Let's all celebrate. We guys have all done an amazing job at this seminar. I really appreciate you coming out. Let's order pizza. And they're like, yeah, let's order pizza. That's going to be awesome. So they're sort of feeling like, okay, we've got, we've done all this. We've gotten, we're getting kind of a, a reward for being good, right? The pizza gets at the event. And as everyone's grabbing a slice of pizza, the speaker, so the, the nutritionist, takes out of uh, his backpack Tupperware and it's got his meal. And he's sitting there eating his chicken, rice, and whatever else he had while everyone else is eating pizza. And, and pretty soon people are looking at him like, wait, why isn't he having pizza? And after everyone was done eating, he said, I basically just tested all of you to see if you really cared about what it is that you're trying to achieve with your goals. And most of you failed. Most of you decided to go with the thing that was most beneficial in the short term instead of thinking of the thing that was most beneficial in the long term. And so he made a point by saying, listen, I'm not judging you for having pizza today, but I'm trying to prove a point to you that sometimes you have to sacrifice in the short term in order to achieve in the long term. And, and the, the nutritionist was actually uh, going through a, um, a, what's called a cutting phase. If you're not familiar with that, a cutting phase is when you reduce your calories. And he was a... Um, I believe he was, I don't know if he still is, a figure competitor. So he had to be very diligent with his calories. And so that was his point. He says, listen, I've got bigger goals than that pizza, having that pizza today, right? It doesn't mean I'll never eat pizza again, but I have bigger goals. So when you're at a party and you're at an event, <clears throat> I don't think it's necessary to completely sacrifice all of the social eating that goes into those events. But I also think it's not smart to just go to a party eat whatever you want in whatever amount, drink whatever you want in whatever amount, most of the time. 
sometimes not going to kill you. But when you do that frequently enough, that's when, that's when fat on your body starts adding up in larger quantities because it's simply just, you know, it's really just a behavior equation. If you constantly do behaviors that create large amounts of calories frequently enough, and this can be just on the weekends, by the way, studies will show that people that are quote unquote really good with calories during the week and then go hog wild on the weekends, the number is staggering. It's like most everyone it's, it's such a common thing that <clears throat> what I've done with a lot of my clients is I said, listen, you're actually, like, I'll look at their nutrition. I'll say, your nutrition on the weekdays is, like, spot on. So why aren't you losing body fat? And they're like, I don't know. That's why I came to you. And I said, okay, well, how about this? Let's just track your, like, I don't care about the week. Like, you've gotten Monday through Friday down pat. Let's just look at the weekend. And when I have them track their weekend calories, it's like, oh my God, it's, you know, it's, it's like, it's pointing me in the face saying, look at that. That's exactly what the problem is. So what's, what's so interesting about that fact is that again, if you're frequent, frequently eating high calorie, high calorie dense foods all the time and, and drinking lots of alcohol, which makes your decision-making even more poor, which means your, your calorie consumption is going to go up and your likelihood of feeling the calories you consume from alcohol is very slim. Like it could be very easy to have three, um, you know, alcohol, uh, what am I trying to say? Alcoholic beers and that's 300 calories, but you probably didn't even feel like from a weight standpoint or a satiety standpoint, those calories. And it only gets harder to make more conscious decisions when you're consuming alcohol anyway. And in fact, studies will show that, um, it's not alcohol that causes people to gain weight. So like if you drink alcohol during a diet, it's very possible to lose body fat and drink alcohol. The problem is, is that most people that are drinking alcohol in the quantities might typically drink it. The numbers of calories you're drinking from alcohol goes up. Plus your likelihood to eat calories while you're drunk or even buzzed to a certain extent goes up as well. And that's because you're not going to make smarter decisions while you're drunk. Very rarely, if at all, are people making good conscious food decisions when they're buzzed or even drunk. So it's really the alcohol is creating a behavior that makes it easier to overeat. It's not the alcohol's fault. You're in complete control of how many calories you consume, but it makes it much harder to actually give a shit about that when you're drunk, which makes perfect sense, right? So, um, Again, I don't exactly know where I was going with that, but you might not want to make that decision where you have to have that social sort of conflict with somebody about not eating the food they prepare. So instead of making an announcement like, I already ate, I'm not going to eat, what you can do is <clears throat> you can eat a meal beforehand and then just lightly snack, right? That's why I want to give you like an hour, two hours before you go to the event because by doing so, you're still partaking in the social eating, right? You're still being a part of the social environment. You're just not allowing yourself or you're making it easier for yourself not to overconsume those calories. So that's why that strategy can be so powerful. And it's one of the reasons why I wanted to bring it up pretty much right away is because of that fact is that if you can do those three things, if no matter where you're going, uh, whether it's a restaurant or a social event, if you can prioritize protein, 
find some kind of way to get vegetables in either as a, a side or a part of your entree. Or if you can, you know, uh, limit things like sauces and dressings and the quantities the restaurant wants to give you and instead still have those things, but in smaller quantities, as well as possibly eating beforehand. If you're going to like a social event where, you know, there's going to be nothing really for you to fill up on or eat enough of, because a lot of times social events are not full on meals for everyone, unless you're maybe going to a barbecue, it's usually like you know, snack foods or hors d'oeuvres or appetizers. So it's foods that typically have a lot of carbs and a lot of fat, not a lot of protein. And if if you're filling up on carbs and protein, especially, I'm sorry, if you're filling up on fats and carbs, especially processed fats and carbs, you're not going to get full very fast, which means those calories are really going to add up once you get to the point where you are full. There have been times where I've tracked my calories and I'll eat until I'm full with processed foods and I'll eat until I'm full with whole foods. And there's sometimes like a three to 400 calorie difference, even more in some cases, depending on the combination of foods that I'm eating. So processed food has a very different effect on satiety than whole food does. So if we can consume or try to aim to get more whole foods in environments like restaurants or social events or even eating beforehand, then we can make a huge difference on the quantity of calories we consume when we're in those situations, okay? So I just spent 45 minutes talking about that, which is actually how much time I I pretty much planned on it because it's such a big topic to have to sort of navigate. It can be difficult to know exactly how to navigate that because there's so many different angles that it can come at. So I'd like to talk about for at least the next uh, you know, five to 10 minutes on some popular food swaps that make weight loss a lot easier. And they're not so different. Like there's a lot of different things out there that you can do, but in terms of ways to reduce calories, it can be sort of similar to what we've already talked about. So if you hear some similarities, um, that can be uh, sort of re-emphasizing the point. So when it comes to replacing calories with lower calorie options, <clears throat> One of the tricks you have to, I guess, one of the patterns you can see to kind of make this easier is a lot of food companies that are health conscious, or I should say produce companies, what they're starting to realize is is that people are becoming very conscious of what they're consuming, right? Not everyone, but a vast majority of the population is not buying certain products or from certain companies because they don't have healthier or lower carb options or whatever, you know, the, um, the method that you are choosing. And so what these produce companies have realized is, is that they need to create a product that fits the need of the customer. That's their whole goal. That's their, that's how they make money. If you're not feeding the, the, or if you're not supplying the need of the customer, you're not going to make any money because the customer is not going to buy your stuff. So what a lot of food companies are doing is instead of just making, uh, you know, having cauliflower on sale, they're ricing their cauliflower and making it freezable. And that's because to a certain extent, cauliflower can make up for a lot of the carb rich foods that a lot of people are trying to reduce. And I would say out of all the different food groups that people have the most difficulty um, controlling or moderating its carbohydrates. It's one of the reasons why so many people have success on low carb diets. And I'm certainly, um, somebody who has experimented with low carb diets and it does make it a lot easier when you start replacing carb rich foods because of the effect that starchy carbs have on the brain for wanting to eat more. 
And the nature of starchy carbohydrates is that <clears throat> the calories are more dense in a lot of cases. And also, the things we add to these starchy carbohydrates make them more tasty. Here's a perfect example. Eat a plain baked potato with no salt or no butter. You're not going to get very far, right? That's an easy way to control your calories. But who wants to eat a baked potato by itself? You want to add some butter and a little bit of salt, right? Well, when you start doing that, now you're adding starch and fat. And when you add starch and fat together along with salty, that's a flavor bomb in and of itself. It might not be the flavor bomb that sugar, salt, and fat is as a, as a trio, but it still heightens the flavor and works with the, the, the fat and the salt from the butter, the, the, I'm sorry, the fat from the butter and the starch from the potato and then the salt that's typically added to it is a flavor combination that's very powerful. It's much, much easier to eat more potato when you have that combination. A lot of times what ends up happening to people when they eat carbs is, is they overeat them. And so what food companies have realized is, is that you can swap, you can kind of swap some typical carb-rich foods like potatoes and rice with something like cauliflower as a very similar texture, um, but it isn't as calorie dense. It's not as easy to get as many calories from something like cauliflower because cauliflower does have more fiber in it. And fiber is one of those things that if you start eating large quantities of fiber, it's going to be very difficult to keep eating, even if it is, uh, you know, flavor rich with things like butters or um, salt and stuff like that. So cauliflower has been a nice little substitute that I've personally used. And I've even recommended to, to clients that do have a, a tendency to, you know, have a hard time reducing the amount of carbohydrates they consume. Um, so that can be a strategy. Cauliflower rice is a great one. <clears throat> Anytime you can add or sort of like what I, well, I'll just give you the simple simplified version that I usually do. I have no problem having starches in my meals, but what I have to do is I have to be more mindful of the portion size of my carbohydrates. So for instance, I have no problem having teriyaki chicken with white rice, but if I just have teriyaki chicken, and have that with white rice, I'm more likely to overeat. I'm not gonna get as full on that as fast. So what I've typically done is I've done two different things. The first thing is, and the first step that I would recommend for you if you're kind of thinking this as a progressional step. So think of it like a ladder. You got one step and then you got a higher step and you just keep going up. So the first step is just adding vegetables to the meals that you're already eating. So for example, I'll have that teriyaki chicken, I'll have the white rice, and then I'll add some vegetables. Maybe it's fajita vegetables, maybe it's broccoli, you know, it, it, it could, as long as it's a vegetable, I think it's pretty good to go. So once you start doing that, then to kind of take it to that next level, and you could jump to this level too, it's not like it's such a large step that you need to go one after the other, but the other thing I'll do is because I've noticed that when I reduce my you know, I'm using rice as an example, but you could do this with pretty much any carbohydrate. When I reduce my rice, I also reduce the amount of bulk in my food. So I still am kind of left feeling hungry and I don't like that feeling. And it's not necessarily a great way to go about sustainably uh, suppressing your appetite in a healthy and natural way through food. So what I've started doing is I'll have half cauliflower rice and then I'll have my normal portion of, of white rice, my normal health conscious portion, not my, hey, let's just put the spoonful in until that looks like the right amount. So I typically would do um, half a cup of rice or maybe three fourths of a cup of rice, depending on you know the day and how active I've been. And then I'll fill the rest with cauliflower rice. And then I'll sometimes, depending on you know how, how much I wanna cook, I'll have another vegetable on top of that, like broccoli or you know 
bell pepper mix or whatever. And then I'll have my protein. And so what I've just done is I've added bulk to my meals without adding a ton of extra calories. And that's what vegetables do more than anything as a benefit for weight loss. Not not to shy away from the health benefits of vegetables. I'm just I just want to make sure that you understand from a weight loss standpoint, <clears throat> you don't even need vegetables. I never recommend that. I'm I know better than that for things like behavior and eating behavior and um, success with consistency. Like having the right nutrition makes consistency with weight loss a hundred times easier. So I very rarely will recommend somebody go completely without vegetables. Although I have trained and worked with somebody like that and you just got to change your method up, right? It's just like typically somebody who has like a severe reverse react, severe adverse reaction to vegetables should do something like on the keto spectrum. So so you're kind of just doing fats and meats and at least get there first. And then, you know, if you're willing to even go into the vegetable realm, then you can get to that, get to that level. But that's usually a psychological thing and that's beyond the scope of my practice. So if that ever happens, if I ever run across someone who's that adversely affected by vegetables, I just refer them, you know, I just say, Hey, listen, you know, I'd love to work with you. I'd love to help you, but you're, you're not going to be able to meet the requirements that my coaching program has. So I would, I would go see, not that there's anything like severely wrong with you, but I would go see somebody about that. Someone who works more on the mind and the psyche, because that's not my expertise. Um, but that's an easy way to make weight loss more consistent by replacing a lot of your starch rich foods with vegetable substitutions. All right. Now, again, you don't have to always do this, but it is a good thing to start incorporating. And I would start with that first step where you just add vegetables to whatever you're eating and then slowly start to swap out calorie for calorie for the most part. Um, well, not calorie for calorie, but swap out the serving of your start starch rich, you know, food with a vegetable version because it's going to be lower in calories. You're not even going to have to count those calories or have to be as conscious about them because they're so low that it's not the thing that's putting you over the edge. The thing that's putting you over the edge is overeating in general. And the things that make overeating easier are processed versions of food or a combination of foods that make it more palatable to eat more of very easily. All right. So that's a very important thing to understand as well. The other things that I've recommended to all my clients, and I'm sure I have this written down somewhere is make sure you measure or you are very, very conscious of the fats that you use in your daily life. So the cooking oil that you use, don't just take the, you know, the olive oil, dispenser and just sprinkle it on because, you know, you could be adding tons of calories you really don't need and tons of flavor that you could get away without having. And I've done experiments with this, like the salad dressing we talked about earlier. I've cooked meals that have, you know, usually will have like a tablespoon of oil. I've done half and I've asked, you know, the people I made it for and even, you know, sort of uh, myself, am I noticed, is there anything that's less flavorful about this? And the difference is so minimal that you might notice the absence of it, but it doesn't make such a difference in the meal that you're choosing to uh, never make it that way again. A lot of times it will satisfy whatever sort of urge or craving you had for that food or that flavor in that food. So you can get away with reducing things like the oils you cook with really easily, especially if you're cooking foods in the oil, like vegetables or even meats to a certain extent, right? So 
do yourself a favor and start measuring out the amount you're consuming. I would say a good place to start is half a tablespoon of oil, <clears throat> no matter what oil you're using, and that will make it a lot easier. Um, which also means that if, if a recipe calls for two tablespoons, use one. You know, just cut it in half and you're literally cutting the calories in half. You're reducing calories you would otherwise consume and it's going to make it easier to reduce your overall intake when you do little things like that because you're not even having to count the difference. You just know the difference is there, which is going to solicit a, uh, you know, some kind of deficit, calorie deficit response, all else, you know, created equal. <clears throat> so those are probably the two biggest culprits is... It's just making sure that you're conscious of the fats you're consuming and the amount that you're consuming them or the portions you're consuming them in. And then making sure that you're, you're when you can, and experimenting with vegetable substitutions of your favorite starch-rich foods. Not saying you can't ever have those again, but in my experience, both coaching and personally, there's hardly ever a difference that's noticed. And yet, it's one of the most effective ways to reduce calories. I think I was in the last episode that I talked about the reason why the keto diet was so successful is because it pretty much eliminated a vast majority of the calories people were overeating without making them feel as though they were restricting themselves from flavor and taste and delicious foods. And that's because our palates are very sensitive to proteins and fats. Those are essential nutrients on the essential spectrum carbohydrates aren't essential. It's not like we have a, a minimum requirement for carbohydrates. You could, if you had to, I'm not saying it's optimal. Don't get it confused with optimal. If you had to, if you're on a desert island and all you had was meat and fat, you could survive, right? You, you wouldn't die. But if all you had was carbohydrates, you're going to have some deficiencies. There's a protein deficiency, which is actually pretty difficult to, to get in the, in the, in a first world country because we have such an abundance of food, but there is a disease that you can get if you do not eat enough protein consistently, not just like one or two days. And fats are essential, which means our body doesn't make them, which means we need to get them from food. So at the end of the day, if you can prioritize and manage your protein and fat content and get those minimums and fill the rest with carbohydrates and fiber-rich foods, you're going to have a pretty sound nutritional, you know, uh, spectrum. You're going to have a, a a wide range of nutrition that you can actually uh, tap into and, and get the most out of. So that's one of the reasons why the keto diet has been so successful. It's not that there's anything magical about cutting out carbs. It's that most of the people that had such a hard time losing weight were carbaholics, and they had no way they they were not held accountable to managing or moderating the amount of carbohydrates they consumed. Right. These are the type of people that eat until they're satisfied and carbohydrates, especially in, in a starch rich uh, environment and with the mixture of other flavors like salt and fat are very, very tasty, but not very satiating. So <clears throat> to sort of wrap up this topic, if you can take these strategies and apply them when you go out to restaurants, when you're eating in an environment that isn't completely controlled by you. The very last thing I want to say is do not become obsessive, okay? I tell you, I'm, I'm saying all of this to you in a way that arms you in the best way you possibly can be armed, but I never want you to feel handcuffed to doing these things all the time, okay? They're a very effective strategies, and I try to make sure that all of my strategies are realistic 
and relatable. So you don't feel like you have to do these things in order to be successful, but they definitely make the road to staying consistent with your nutrition a lot easier in an environment that wants you to get fat and overeat. Let's face it, our food environment is designed for us to get fat and overeat. So we have to take responsibility and understanding that and navigating around that so that the majority of the time we're not sucked into that that sort of you know tornado of processed foods that don't fill us up, that load up the calories, that cause us to overeat. And a lot of times when we overeat, we become underactive. And I mean, I won't even go through the whole entire you know, sequence, but the, our food environment has been designed to get us to overeat and to get us to be fatter, right? What do you get when you create an environment where people are less active and the calories are more dense? You get obesity. It's the perfect equation. It makes perfect sense. The fact that there are people debating why the obesity epidemic is a thing aren't seeing the equation. It makes perfect sense. I'm not saying it's an excuse, but it makes perfect sense. You as an individual have the responsibility and it is your responsibility to take control. No one is going to do it for you. You have to start becoming more educated with nutrition so that you can make the right choices a large majority of the time, not every single time, okay? You you can have fun and go hog wild and drink the alcohol and eat the food and yeah, it's okay every now and then. But your problem isn't that you're doing it every now and then, your problem is you're doing it a lot. And if you're doing it a lot, it's just logical sense that it's gonna create excess fat on your body. Okay, so I want to leave you with that message. Thanks a ton for listening to this podcast. I really do appreciate it. That's it for me on this episode. I'll say it uh, like I do at the end of every episode. If you enjoy this podcast, if you think the value of this podcast is worth your time, which you obviously are if you're listening to the end of this podcast, I would really, really, really highly appreciate a recommend or not a recommendation, any kind of feedback you can give me, a review whether it's a star review or if you want to leave a little comment, whatever you feel is, is going to be something you would like to do and that you'd be willing to do because uh, it helps give me good feedback. It also helps uh, get this podcast out to more people. Uh, I think that a better rating helps push the podcast to more people that need to listen to it. And if you think it's valuable information that's reasonable and cuts through the bullshit and gets uh, what needs to be said out there to the people that need it the most, then your review can go a really long way. So I would really appreciate it if you wouldn't mind doing that uh, really quickly. And that being said, that is it for episode 22. Thanks a ton for listening. I'll see you in a future episode.